The Gist is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. All Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. Right now, get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash gist and using the promo code GIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, June 6, 2016, from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And saying that date just made me realize that it's been 10 years. It's the 10th anniversary of a specific piece I did for NPR. I remember it because it was about the babies of the beast. I would be proud whoever my son is. And if the Antichrist is who he is, you know, that's who he's going to be. Actually, Michelle dodged the Bielsa bullet. After we taped that interview, her son came a little early. The babies of the beast were those children who were born on 6606. So now that it's 6616, you are maybe a fourth grader. Your parents did not avoid having you be a baby of the beast. And if you are or if you know any babies of the beast, please email us at the gist at slate.com or go to our Facebook page, Slate Gist. I just thought of the babies of the beast. I have to, I have to be honest with you. When I was reporting that piece, I didn't make up the phenomenon, but I didn't know that the phenomenon existed before I said to myself, I bet there are a lot of mothers who could give birth on 6606 who don't want to. And indeed, there were, there was a pediatrician and an OBGYN who said, yes, I, I have heard some chatter about wanting to avoid being the baby of the beast. And I will tell you this, the great thing that I learned from my baby of the beast piece is that. In the Bible, 666 is actually a mistranslation. It's actually 616, a classic bit of satanic misdirection, getting everyone nervous about June 6th, when he really slipped through the door four days ago, 6106. On the show today, we talk to Chuck Klosterman, who thinks we're wrong. He's probably right. And in the spiel, cats and the terrible men who love to pet them. And now it's thinker, writer, and amateur scholar. If believing what he says is wrong, then I don't want to be right. Actually, I always want to be right. I think you'll get some of that in this interview. Chuck Klosterman's new book, But What If We're Wrong, is full of trenchant arguments and clear-eyed predictions which must be very embarrassing to him because, as we know, they're going to wind up being wrong. This is the premise of his book. We're thinking about the present as if it were the past. And the basic conceit is all this stuff, subjective analysis of who's a great rock musician to gravity itself, this stuff that we just take as true, even if we hold a little asterisk out and say, well, there's a chance it won't be true, but really, come on, it's true. There's a huge chance it won't be true. And Klosterman interrogates this, and now I interrogate him. Hello, Chuck. Hey, how are you doing? Is this because you're, you, have, you have a lot of things that you do and a lot of different ways of viewing the world, but do you see yourself as essentially a critic? There's a lot of subjectivity to this, and so much of the critic's job is to say this or that will stand the test of time. I guess. I mean, I suppose in a sense this is a book of criticism, but it doesn't feel – like the criticism I've done before. Right. It, it, it seems different. The, the premise, I guess I, I slowly came up with over a few years unknowingly. Like I was pursuing a lot of other kinds of writing and sort of a lot of other areas and 
And then I had basically one weekend <laughs> where I decided to write this specific book because two things happened. First, I was watching the the Fox reboot of Cosmos, the, the, <laughs> the science series Cosmos. And, and, you know, they did a pretty good job. In fact, I think it's interesting how, in, in a sense, Fox almost should have got more credit for doing this. I mean, it was the most pro-science show that had ever been on television, which kind of contradicts everything about, you know, their news institution. But regardless, yeah. I'm watching this. And to me, the most interesting parts were when – they would talk about some kind of arcane scientist from like the 15th century and, and kind of an unknown person to us and essentially say this person had an idea. And prior to that, everyone had thought one thing and then he thought something else. And within a generation, it had just kind of become the accepted way to, to, to think and feel about reality. And, you know, I thought to myself, you know, this must be going on all the time. There just must be this continual process of people who believe something and then one idea shifts that and we move on as if we'd always pretended to think this way. Yeah, that's called the historical fallacy. Yeah. The stuff that happens was deigned to happen. And if you apply it to intellectualism, oh, the stuff we think is, of course, what we always thought or what we were going to necessarily think, and it's not true. Well, or, or just the, the, the way sort of human nature works. You mm -hmm. don't spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, the stability of your own thoughts. You just, they just kind of exist. Around the same time, I was reading about Moby Dick. I wasn't reading Moby Dick, but I was reading about it. You know, Herman Melville sort of believed this was going to be his masterwork and this is defining piece of literature. Then it came out and it got mixed reviews and it didn't sell that great and kind of ruined his life and then he died. And it wasn't until after World War I that there was a rediscovery of yeah. this book, not only as a good book, but like this is the book, okay? Like this is the great American novel. So the first example, the science thing is like objective ideas. Mm -hmm. And the second one is obviously subjective beliefs, the way we perceive art, the way we perceive these things. And I just thought to myself, what if we used the criteria we use for thinking about history and apply it to right now? Because in the day-to-day, -day, we sort of look at these things very differently than the way we look at things that happened 400 years ago. So when I'm saying like, you know, uh, you know, what if we're wrong? Well, I mean, what if we're right? That would have a meaning too because that would be – that would kind of contradict the history of ideas. Yes, this yeah. big idea that we're always wrong. That turned out to have been wrong and it was mm. close to him to put his finger on it. But before – by the way, before Moby Dick, did we even have the concept of the great American novel and did we call Sister Carrie that? I, <laughs> I hope not. I assume that that term yeah. sort of – came later when there was this idea that this was a meaningful, important thing to do and also America had been around enough, you know, long enough to really see it as what, you know, what I'm trying to do is an extension of being raised in this country. So it's kind of like a modernist thing. But you, you spend a lot of time in the book talking about especially authors and who's going to be the great novelist because, you know, I think someone you quoted as saying there's maybe a 20% chance of the people we think are great now will stay as great or 20% of the people who we think of as great. But I would say... This question about who will be a great novelist is as relevant, is likely to be as relevant as who's the great pointillist debate we're having now. Because we don't have that debate because pointillism has gone away as a means of expression. And I think maybe that's happening to novels. So just as much as your book is talking about, ah, we might shift and we might point to this guy as the great novelist, I think there's just as good a chance that the idea of a great novelist will become so niche that it won't be as big a debate or it will be about as big a debate as like modern jazz. Okay, I would I would say two things on that. First of all, 
in a sense, you're totally right mm-hmm. in that that the hardest thing about trying to predict the future and in terms of how it will see its own past is not so much around the content but really sort of like the pillars of what thought is. Like, like if no one is interested in literature at all, obviously uh, there will be – no concern about you know who used to, but right. but the thing I would that I think is different. The reason I start with literature and books is because I think now books have a meaning outside of themselves. That people you know they use them as art objects in their house, and we have all these phrases like "oh she's book smart" or "we're throwing the book at them," or we almost now have 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 built in baked into the way we look at the world this idea that there is a value and import to a collection of written thoughts so maybe in the future there will be no physical books but i have a sense we'll still use that term even if the thing that we're talking about has no relationship to what a book is now but there is that story and it i don't think it's true but it was either Edward Bernays or an early psychologist who his client was the American booksellers. Do you know this story? And the way, instead of telling them what to do to market their books, he just said, let's let's pair with the American homemakers and build pre-made bookshelves into every American home. And therefore, people will buy more books because the bookshelves are there. Well, I mean, that's a good idea because what what is interesting about books is that unlike so many other things that you purchase, they do say something about who you theoretically are if those books have been consumed. Unless they're all now in our devices and we can't see what the person on the subway is reading. And the reason I say this about books is not just the acknowledgement that different forms of media come and go. A hundred years ago, if you were the smartest person around in your town, in your city, you needed a way to get these this smartness out, you'd write a novel. Times were solitary. There wasn't electronic images. There were no other ways to get those great thoughts out. So the top, whatever it was, I'm sure actually there were so many potential brilliant thinkers that we just cast away because they were in America black or in the world women or just too poor to even maybe even be literate. But the greatest thinking was done in books. And I just think that as much as we say it's a shame that if you look at the sale of books or if you look at what we consider a best-selling novel and it could sell just a few thousand copies, I just think that there are brilliant novelists, but there are people who are specifically drawn to the novel. And there are so many other ways to be brilliant. It just seems illogical to me that in a hundred years, we're going to say it's still the novel that's the greatest repository of reflection on the human experience. Okay. Well, I have two things to say on this too. Mm-hmm. Okay. I used to have thousands and thousands of compact discs. Okay. My, my, the walls of my apartment were covered in compact discs and my wife made me digitize them all and get rid of them. And I fought her on this a long time. I did not want to do this. And I finally did. And then almost instantly, I realized something. I like music. I don't like round metal discs. Uh Like I didn't miss the discs at all. I didn't care whatsoever once they were gone. For some reason, I thought I liked that physical object, but what I actually liked was the content it held. So when we talk about books and novels and these things, what you're talking about is, you know, great thinkers having these ideas. It is true that maybe these will be folded into some other object, but the thing that we like about novels is something that we probably will always like, even if it comes through, I mean, it's very, okay, almost a cliche argument now that a lot of novels have been replaced by like prestige television. Right. And that the kind of person who used to read a novel a month is now like, well, you know, they watched Mad Men or they watched Game of Thrones and that replaces that in their life. I suppose if you get enough distance, you could almost make the argument that all of these things are the same 
something. And maybe that's really what I'm talking about. I'm using book because we know the terms. But I think Judd Judd Apatow, 100 years ago, is a novelist. And I think Woody Allen is the one that spans Philip Roth to Judd Apatow in in that Woody Allen thought it was really important to write for The New Yorker and to have the written word. And just Judd right now doesn't feel the need to put it on the page in prose. Uh, that's a complicated thing because what you're also saying is sort of all skills are interchangeable. No. No, you are yeah. because who is to say that, that Judd Apatow would have the skill to write a novel and who is to say that somebody who was writing a book in the 30s, if technology had been different, would have become a filmmaker? You, a lot of this has to do with what you're, you know, what you personally want to pursue as an artist. But also the thing you were saying about 100 years ago, the smartest guy in your town mm-hmm. or whatever, you know, that is something in and of itself that has changed dramatically. In the past, there was obviously much more emphasis on individual memory. Uh, you know, you are an expert on history because you could remember more about history than other people. Well, now, of course, that has been completely you know, flattened and equalized. Now the ability to acquire knowledge is real. Anyone can do it. You know, you can be an expert on something um, or a quote-unquote expert just by having the information in front of you that you can easily access. So that then changes the meaning of what a smart person is. A smart person is no longer somebody who has sort of the greatest universal memory of an event but who can sort of present their view of the event in a way that seems cogent and sort of provocative and interesting. That's another problem I kind of deal with in this book is just like – when a term like that, you know, intelligence or transgressive or any of these things, when those terms change over time, that really alters how we go back and rethink about the past. Yeah. Yes. And so I think intelligence is, I mean, the definition that I've been working with, it's it's the synthesis. It's you have to have the information and knowing that you could access it on Wikipedia is nice, but it helps to actually have it because it's making connections between these things. And so maybe I analogize the brain to like a computer that makes connections. And since we didn't have computers 200 years ago, they would analogize the brain to a giant library where scribes were, you know, just writing. Oh, no, yeah, I mean, it's a complicated thing. I mean, I talk about this in this book. You know, there's a part in Bob Dylan's autobiography mm-hmm. where he discusses how he likes to record real long songs like Tom Giotta or whatever, all these verses, because he thinks that there's just like it's enriching. To remember yeah. things, you know, and he was born at a time when, when you went to school, there was tons of rote memorization. Now, I went to school in the seventies and eighties. That had sort of been lost. There were a few things we had to memorize: the Gettysburg Address. You know, I was Catholic, so I would go to you know CYO and have to learn all these prayers. Yeah. You know? there's even less of that now. the The, the idea of, of needing to memorize things has has sort of become something that it almost seems like an irrational thing to force a kid to do, and yet. It's hard for me to get out of the mind frame that that's a big part of what being a smart person is. Yeah. It's sort of like you don't need to look at your computer or a book or an equation to know something. You just know it. But that has changed. So as that continues to erode, how will that affect the way we look back on smart people? Well, would uh. we even use the phrase, you know, back when we were doing rote memorization, would we use the adjective rote? I, probably not. Yes, it would just be called memorization. Yes. And when know? I remember hearing about, I don't think either of us were alive. No, I know we weren't. When Jay was it? No, it was when Martin Luther King was shot, and Robert F. Kennedy tried to quell a potentially riotous crowd, and I think it was Indianapolis. And he stands on a flatbed truck and he recites an Aeschylus poem from memory, and it's this great moment of bonding with a crowd and being brave. And the thing that always impressed me was that he memorized an Aeschylus oh, poem. Sure. I mean, because anytime you're around a person and they memorize a poem, 
it's amazing, it's amazing. right? You, you know, should but yeah. I, then some people would say, well, like you know, to invest the time to memorize a poem, like that's a kind of privilege that that oh. you have the luxury of basically memorizing someone else's thoughts. Now, I'm not saying that this is what I think. I'm saying that that argument can be made, yeah. and I understand where they're coming from. That 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 is seemingly a superfluous kind of thing. I remember. For whatever reason, when I was in high school, I thought it was really cool to memorize like a Robert Frost poem. You know, it's like on the winter evening, you know, whose woodsies are. I think. How practical is it? I guess I've used it in conversations where people said, does anyone here know poems? <laughs> I mean, that's about as far as it's gone, you know. It's like, yeah. yeah. Or someone said, what's the weirdest thing you ever did in high school? And then you have an answer. Chuck Klosterman, but what if we're wrong? I read that upside down because the book jacket is printed either upside down or right side up, depending on your perspective. Yeah, it was interesting. You know, they, they came in and they said, like, we want to publish the book like this, with, mm-hmm. you know. And my initial reaction was, is like, what is the track record of books where the author's name and the title were published upside down? Mm-hmm. We could not find one. We found many where the title was upside down or something was upside down, but nothing where everything was upside down. So then I was like, we got to do it. Yeah. Chuck closed him in. But what if we're wrong? Thanks so much, Chuck. Thanks a lot. Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It combines springy latex and supportive memory foams to create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right amount of sink, the right amount of bounce. Time magazine, you've heard of it, right? Named it one of the best inventions of 2015. It is, someone had to be, and it is the most awarded mattress of the decade. But it deserves it. Perhaps I mock the designation of most awarded mattress of the decade. Perhaps I should say something like, don't sleep on Casper, but it's an amazing mattress and the price is fantastic. Most mattresses sell for, you know, $1,500, right? The biggest mattress that Casper sells for the king is $950. If you want to go on the smaller end, $500 for a twin size mattress, $600 for a twin XL, a great price, great quality. Like, you you don't get the mattress of the decade for nothing. But the thing is, don't take my or Times or the people who give out mattress awards wor- uh, word for it. Try it yourself. The greatest thing about Casper is they have a 100-night risk-free offer. If you don't love it, Casper will pick it up and refund you everything. And the whole thing comes with free shipping and free returns everywhere in the United States and Canada. Buying a Casper mattress is completely risk-free. So, to get $50 off any of these mattresses, go to casper.com slash gist. And when you're there, use the promo code gist at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. And now the spiel, Chairman Mao, or at least the cat's pajamas. Last week, Hillary Clinton said this of Donald Trump. I have to say, I don't understand Donald's bizarre fascination with dictators and strong men who have no love for America. She went on to list his praise of Putin, Kim Jong-un, and said that I will leave it to psychiatrists to explain his affection for tyrants. Well, let me give it a try. The guy's insecure, and I'm not even a psychologist. But today, I do not want a psychiatrist or a secretary of state or Russia today to explain Donald Trump, who's one weird cat's affection for tyrants. I want to explain tyrants' affection for cats. 
Dateline Russia. Now, remember two years ago, the Sochi Olympics, there was Vladimir Putin. He entered the cage of a snow leopard and was photographed petting the glorious and sharp-toothed cat. CNN reported it this way. The Kremlin's image was soft and furry Tuesday. Vladimir Putin and a snow leopard, the mascot of the world's most expensive games alongside their creator. Unafraid of one of nature's most savage. Well, they were both next to nature's most savage of one form of fauna or another. But just this week, the Russian president has showed that he has a strategy, a strategy of indifference. Foreign policy ran an article headlined, Vladimir Putin doesn't actually care about saving leopards, right? Which is the sort of thing that a well-known rapper blurts out, leaving Mike Myers to stand there sputtering and red-faced. Vladimir Putin doesn't care about saving leopards. Subhead, a high-profile Putin-backed campaign to protect the habitat of Persian leopards has been quietly abandoned, clearing the way for the country's richest man to expand his ski resort. So there was a leopard habitat there. That's where Vladimir Putin was inside the leopard habitat, petting a leopard that was not going to be the particular leopard he was petting, was too used to humans. So that leopard was not going to be released into the wild. But other leopards in that habitat were planned on being released into the wild. And that plan is still in place. The problem is the wild doesn't seem wild anymore. There was going to be this sanctuary near where he was petting the leopard, but that sanctuary has been sold. Much of it has been sold off to build this gigantic Olympic ski resort. And the guy paying for it is, of course, one of the rich Russian oligarchs who is a crony of Putin. The, uh, the FP quotes a couple Russian environmentalists about what happened. One guy says, the, uh, this is the director of the World Wildlife Fund for Nature in Russia. He says, we, meaning Russia, we made a promise. They gave us the Olympics. We said, thank you. And now we're not going to keep that promise. That's the situation. And then the director of Greenpeace in Russia said, if they build all of this, meaning the huge ski resort, the program for restoring the leopards will be meaningless. But like the beast in question itself, Putin cannot change his spots, nor can a key Putin lackey. Ramzam Kadmarov, head of Chechnya, which is to say Moscow Lickspittle, an oafish tough guy, Ramzan Kadmarov, is missing his cat. The cat is known as a Bengal or a Toyger because it really does look like a small, tiny little tiger. And Kadmarov loves his little tiger. And he's always posting about his tiger on social media. Basically, it's like if Mike Tyson weren't the worldly guy we know Mike Tyson to be, and also if Mike Tyson's father was a Putin loyalist who got assassinated, and then Putin decided to make Mike Tyson the leader of Chechnya, well, that's who Kadmarov is. He's the ruler of Chechnya, this country-like place. He loves Putin, wears Putin t-shirts, and is really sad that his baby tiger has gone missing. Because, you know, a strong man can only be so strong. Ramzan Kadyrov lost this cat. The leader of Chechnya addressed his Instagram followers and asked them to help him search for the Bengal, which is the breed of the pet. So if you are living in the Republic and saw a similar animal a couple of days ago, now's the time to contact the head of your region. 
Now, if you heard the laughing at the end of that clip, it's because Mary Wilson did not do her job. No, it's because it was played on John Oliver's HBO show last month. Oliver picked a fight with Kadmorov over how ridiculous it is to ask a nation to look for your cat. I checked in recently to see how this search for the cat was going and also to see how mocking the search for the cat was going and both seem to have halted. Kadmorov took to Instagram to explain his position. Some people say they saw the cat in Vladivostok, Japan, Iceland, New Zealand, and even in the Oval Office of the White House. I'm grateful to all, but that is not my cat. It became known that even the American TV channel HBO joined the search. The anchorman comedian John Oliver asks millions of viewers to look for a cat. I know long ago that in the USA, unevenly breathe to my younger friends. One day, horses aren't allowed to jump, and the other, a cat, is a real star of a show. Dude, you do not know American media. Cats are real stars of shows all the time. And our horses jump freely. I do not know what that is a reference to. What could have been lost in translation where, oh, I didn't mean horses aren't meant to jump. I meant transgendered people are allowed in bathrooms. I have no idea what the guy's talking about. Anyway, it turns out in this three weeks since John Oliver mocked the guy on his HBO show, where American no breathe freely, John Oliver has gone a little quiet too. And I think I understand why. Usually the stakes for a satirist are maybe the target of your complaint shuns you or sneers at you or gets to say at a press conference, oh, you're a real beauty. But a critic of Kadmorov, well, let me tell you what happened to another critic. Here, this is from Russian media. A man who saw his house burn down after he criticized the authorities in Russia's Chechen Republic has publicly apologized for making the complaints. Ramazan Deladnyov also accused the media of distortion in the message broadcast by Chechnya state television company Grozny. I apologize to Chechen leader Ramzan Kadmorov that this happened. I apologize to the entire people of Chechnya and ask others like me not to do the wrong things. The man whose house burned down said... And this brings us to another Russian-associated figure, another lover of Putin, a guy named Igor Strelkov. I was fascinated by Igor Strelkov a couple years ago. He is an ultra-nationalist, very pro-Russian war reenactor, and he found himself in Ukraine, where he was affiliated with the Donbass People's Militia Paramilitary Group, and they took over the town of Slavyansk, and this kind of set off the entire Ukraine war. And he was, he's 40 three is a little pot-bellied, but he's always wearing army fatigues. And he's a Russian war reenactor. A lot of people think his group is the group responsible for shutting down Malaysian airlines. The Guardian just did an interview with him. Now, he's been frozen out because he's so hardcore that Putin doesn't even know what to do with this guy. Like, Putin doesn't want to invade more countries, and this guy just wants to keep invading. You know, that's the war reenactor's greatest hope, that there really is a war. So, he did this interview with The Guardian, and this is him trying to put his best foot forward saying, I'm not such a bad guy. So he admits to shooting people for looting, but claims the executions were legal as they were carried out according to a Soviet law on wartime justice. Uh, there is no Soviet Union. Anyway, this is Strelkov explaining why he shot a lot of people during the conflict. He says, in military circumstances, without strict discipline, 
And without the vengeful sort of justice, the situation would not be controllable. He goes right to the vengeful sort of justice. No, no easing into it. You know, the temperate, but rather sharp if it comes to it sort of justice. So the vengeful sort of justice is the sword. And he further explains why he was able to use his vengeful sort of justice by saying, I was the only person to hold trials and not just shoot people. It was a troika of judges with a military prosecutor and a lawyer. Remember, these are all reenactors. They're military. They were appointed by no one. They were not officially endorsed by anyone. And he goes on to say, there were innocent verdicts as well to prove, you know, that it was a real court. Anytime you cite the legitimacy of the executions you meted out by using the word troika, no, that sword is vengeful. But this guy, like I said, is on Putin's shit list, which is to say, I would not be selling him long-term life insurance. Uh, he just went too far. I guess Putin doesn't know what to do with him. But what I see is there's a chance for his rehabilitation. Because I want to read you this one paragraph, I think this very telling paragraph in The Guardian, which indicated to me that he might have a future as a Russian strongman. Two years later, which is to say after you know the shooting down of the Malaysian airliner, Strokov cuts a very different figure. During an interview with The Guardian at his small Moscow office, in civilian clothing and slightly chubbier, he spent the encounter stroking his huge Maine Coon Cat, Grumpy, which lay on the table in front of him. There you go. There's his chance. You know Putin is open to cat lovers, and you know that like a leopard, he cannot change his spots. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson doesn't care about waterfowl. I want to thank Afim Shapiro, who helped us last week producing the Moby and Tim Heidecker interview. He didn't do Klosterman. Afim Shapiro doesn't care about Klosterman. Steve Liktai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, doesn't care about the Igbo peoples of Nigeria. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, doesn't care about soft serve ice cream with no air pumps. The gist. We don't care about indifference. Umpuru depuru dupuru. And thanks for listening. <laughs>